This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that might have an impact on your career. I'm your host, Bev Jones. I'm an executive coach, and I wrote Find Your Happy at Work. A theme of that book is the importance of taking breaks in the midst of your busy work life, whether that means one minute of breathing or a long vacation. Our guest today, Abby Falick, is an expert on the value of pausing during our busy lives. Abby has degrees from Stanford and Harvard Business School, and she's widely known as an innovative thinker and an award-winning social entrepreneur. In particular, she's an expert on leadership in the changing landscape of education. Abby was a founder, and for more than a decade, the CEO of Global Citizen Year, which creates meaningful pre-college bridge years for high school grads. She'll explain why taking a purposeful gap year after high school can make a huge difference in a college student's leadership skills and ultimate success. Abby will also talk about the ideas related to leadership and learning that she'll be exploring in her new role as an entrepreneur in residence at the Emerson Collective, created by Lorraine Powell Jobs. Abby, today we're going to talk about why taking a pause in the middle of your work life can be such a good thing and why big pauses like uh, maybe a, a gap year before heading off to college can be a good thing. We've got a lot to talk about. But first, um, let me say I'm thrilled to have you here, and I am fascinated about how your career path started. So before we get into the question of how to pause, would you tell us a little bit about your career? Happy to, and thank you, Bev, for having me. I've really been looking forward to this conversation. So when I think about the experiences that were most formative in my own development, I think about things that happened quite far from my formal education. They were experiences of myself in the world through travel at a young age. Um, I, I think it's probably worth mentioning that in 1978, my parents quit their jobs before they had had kids. They were recently married. And they took all their savings and spent a year traveling around the world. And in many ways, that became then the ground note for how they wanted to live their lives. It was their own discovery of the power of creating a pause. And it then really infused the way that they parented in many ways, where I feel like their approach, their philosophy in parenting us, I've got two younger siblings, um, was that learning happens when we're in our stretch zone and beyond the the, the comforts of where, where we're born. And so I remember my earliest childhood memories were traveling with them in Southern Africa and Southeast Asia and having experiences that just blew open my sense of myself in the world, gave me an awareness of my own privilege and opportunity, and really illuminated what I've come to think about, of as a a social justice nerve, this idea that we've all got it. We've all got a nerve, and once it's activated, you really can't ignore it. And so I think of those early foundational experiences. And then I, you know, I, I also was hardwired as an entrepreneur from a very early age. I can see the the signs that I was just a human who couldn't not scan for where there was a need and then gather resources to connect dots to create something that didn't exist. So whether it was selling my dad's neckties door to door or starting a summer camp when I was in middle school for local kids, I just have always had this instinct that um, 
you know, I ask permission, I ask for forgiveness rather than permission in, in getting things done and, and starting things that might not already be in the world. Well, I would love to meet your parents. I think they were way ahead of their time, and it sounded like they gave you exactly the upbringing that uh, worked for you. What what a wonderful way to develop your picture of the world and 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 get started. But um, not everybody has that kind of uh, wonderful background. It is. A desire to give more people a, sort of an enriched period like that part of what led you to um, be so interested in gap years. Absolutely, I think again from a from from a young age, I had this sense that I was having access to a terrific education and all kinds of opportunities that most young people in the U.S. and around the world um, couldn't have even dreamed of. And so in many ways, I've seen my role as forging new paths that help young people from all backgrounds uncover their purpose and recognizing that finding our purpose can't be seen as a privilege. It needs to be a birthright. Well, how did you go from being a young person who was thinking about these things to reaching the stage where you went a about the act of creating a, a, a nonprofit and a whole new uh, approach to um, higher education. What um, was the path that allowed you to put your, your values into action so early? Well, I would say it was a slow cook for me. Sometimes we look to entrepreneurs who will say, oh, there was this eureka moment and everything clicked. And and mine was really a series of experiences and insights that I am grateful in hindsight that I just gave them all space to germinate. So, so the initial instinct was when I finished high school and I checked the boxes, I'd been, a, you know, an excellent sheep, um, really good at, at my identity as good student. And I'd gotten into Stanford. Um, and in many ways, I had I had won that game, the way that we've designed school to be this high stakes game to get into selective college. And yet I knew there was more I was looking for. And I knew that there were questions I was hungry to answer. And teachers I wanted to seek out that were not in traditional school settings. And I remember calling the Peace Corps to see if they would take me in that transition after high school. And they said, go to college, you need a college degree. And it really struck me even then as ironic and a shame that we don't provide opportunities in that critical life transition for young people to have a rite of passage, to leave home, to discover who they are and what they believe in, who they're becoming, what the world needs, how they can drive impact at the intersection of those two things. And, you know, we send millions of 18-year-olds into military service or into religious service, but where is the opportunity that calls young people in the service of humanity, in the service of our our, our sort of shared stewardship of the planet, and, and not toward some kind of service in the world, but much more as a next step of our own learning journey and learning process. So I ended up going straight to college. I took a year off during uh, Stanford, and I lived and worked in Latin America. And when I look back, that was the most important part of my educational journey was that year I spent um, 
having experiences on my own outside of the classroom. And when I came back, I petitioned for that year of experience to count for credit, which I think is telling in hindsight. It was really this early sense that the things that we accredit may not be the things that are most worthy of credit, that we need new forms of credentials, new ways of recognizing not just what we know, but what we can do and who we are becoming. Um, so I would say those are, are were early sort of formative experiences that helped help plant the early seeds. Well, I am impressed that you early, and I guess from partly your parents, but that early on you understood the power of taking a break, pausing. I, um, my latest book, uh, Find Your Happy at Work, talks a lot about pausing and taking breaks, whether it means like a minute or a long vacation. But in my case, I had to unlearn a lot to get there. I was kind of brought up with the idea that you can be anything, but you just have to work night and day without a break. And it took me years to finally understand that it's the pauses and the opportunities to kind of focus in or think about things that make so much difference. How It, it feels like um, that is part of your uh, approach to life. And I think one thing that I'm finding so interesting is that you've been so influential and innovative, but you haven't given up that um, recognition that the pauses count. Is is that right? Oh, it's a beautiful way to share it, Bev. And I also think about the fact that we teach what we most need to learn. And so I can't for a moment pretend that all of this was intuitive and I was taking deliberate pauses as a kid. I can look back and tell the story. The dots always connect when we're looking back. Yeah. but I, And I can see how some of the experiences I had of knowing my own power to step off the perceived path, of having the courage to um, move in a different direction from the herd or from my peers, there was something that awakened in me in those experiences of seeing and experiencing myself in new contexts, new rhythms, new cultures um, that, you know, I think of, of risk taking or even pause making as, as a muscle that we learn to develop. And the more we exercise it, the more we need it. Uh, the more we're willing to orient around it. But I've had to manufacture pauses into my life. I think modern life has us hustling so hard and fast toward these imaginary finish lines. And the speed of our lives is only accelerating. I think, you know, things have never changed this quickly before, but they will never change this slowly ever again. And social media and technology are just, you know, rewiring our nervous systems to feel like we have to be always on, always on. And so for me, it's manufacturing pauses in the haste of modern life. So it's a, a meditation every morning. It's a day unplugged every week. I, I take a, a non-religious Sabbath on Saturdays where I leave my phone and technology behind. I also carve out a week every year for a silent meditation that ends up being the most formative and uh, transformative part of my own personal growth and development. But I'm just a huge advocate for uh, anything that shifts us off balance a little bit and forces us to see the water we're swimming in. And um, I also th uh, often think of the Viktor Frankl quote um, that between stimulus and response, there's a space in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies our growth and our freedom. Oh, wonderful quote. Yes. It's really my words to live by. It's on my computer when I open it every morning. And it's this notion that we 
have the agency and ability to create that space between one breath and the next, one action and a reaction, um, you know, one one job and the next, creating space. Nobody's going to give us permission to pause. We have to learn to do it ourselves. Well, you have had a big pause recently, but let's go back in time a little bit. And, and would you tell us about your decade with Global Citizen Year and what you did there and what they do, and then we'll move on to your pause, and then we'll move on to what you're doing now. So so Global Citizens sounds like an intriguing um, organization with an interesting mission. So you asked earlier about my own path and my own entrepreneurial journey. And I look back, I wrote a thesis at the end of college that was essentially a blueprint for what became Global Citizen Year, but I realized at the time that I wasn't ready to build and launch it, and in many ways, the world wasn't ready for what I was envisioning or proposing. And so there was a way in which I was able to have the patience to recognize that things take the time they take. I took a couple of other jobs that were incredibly important in my own leadership development and my own understanding of how to build um, powerful institutions in the social impact space. And then I went to business school, which was a terrific training. Um, Even though I wasn't interested in building a, a, quote, business per se, I knew that I wanted to develop the skills and network and confidence that would allow me to launch Global Citizen Year in the most impactful way. And when I won the pitch competition coming out of Harvard Business School, that was my moment of commitment. I knew that this was an idea whose time was come and the time was now to actually get it started. Um, So I spent the next 12 years launching, building, leading the organization and feel enormously proud of what we built. Well, my understanding is what you built is an organization that supports uh, opportunities for high school kids to have a, a really meaningful, purposeful gap year before they go off to college. And that's making a huge difference in, in their lives and their success. Is that right? That's exactly right. And it's really a recognition that the traditional ways we've thought about a, quote, gap year are um, really underselling what the opportunity can be, back to our conversation about the power of the pause. So religions and societies and cultures around the world have long understood the power of the developmental moment between childhood and adulthood dependence and independence, high school, and what comes next. And so the key insight, and it's supported by neuroscience, that our prefrontal cortex is still forming at age 18. We've got the maturity to leave home, but we haven't yet fixed our values and our identity. And so the notion behind Global Citizen Year was to create experiences that would allow high-achieving emerging leaders from around the world to have an immersive global experience in between high school and and what comes next. And over the course of the last dozen years, we uh, supported 2,000 young people from 100 countries in, in having these kinds of experiences that shaped their sense of who they are, what the world needs, and, and how they can really have meaningful impact at the intersection of the two. It sounds like that's a lot of lot of kids spread over a long time. It sounds like you probably have some data now about how they're doing. What What's the result if you look at it, say, five years out? Do you have a sense of that? Absolutely. I mean, we've been data crazy from the beginning and have followed all kinds of metrics around empathy, global perspective, resilience, ease with ambiguity, entrepreneurial spirit. But I, I'm often hesitant to cite 
the data points, even as they do prove the thesis, because to me, it's in the interactions with these young leaders who are now, you know, in their 20s and early 30s. And it's really an embodied sense of they know that it is more important to ask a good question than to show up with the answer. They know the power of the pause. They know that leadership is not a position, a title, or an arrival point, that leadership is a lifelong practice. And so when I watch how they're showing up and what kinds of challenges they are addressing, I'm just enormously heartened, and it makes me optimistic about the future. Well, I'm going to share an observation here that may not be right, but... um when we, we were first introduced back in the spring, and I was really interested in having a chance to meet you and get you on the podcast and so forth, um, and my impression is that you were feeling kind of stressed. And I think sometimes you I pick that up just from third-party schedulers, but also you wrote a, a column somewhere, I can't remember where, where you kind of talked about the busyness of your day. Um, and so I, I had a sense that... Um, that you were um, ready for a pause yourself. And and then, lo and behold, you had a pause. You were able to take a sabbatical, and you had a very um, new kind of experience. First, would you tell us, were you really ready for it, and, and what did you do on your sabbatical? So it was an incredible gift to be able to uh, remember how to practice what I'd been preaching about the power that Um, space between one experience and the next can reveal to us. And I remember talking to a mentor early in that process, and she reflected back to me. She said, oh, you you can take your own advice. Use the same framework that you've used with thousands of young people through the years. And and I did. I took that framework to heart. And, I, and I'm happy to share it now because I think it it was incredibly useful to me. And, and my hope is that it can be useful to others. But the approach I took in this sort of unbounded, unstructured time that can be so disorienting. I think we're so averse to downtime, to liminal spaces between one thing and the next. We're so hardwired to chase down the answer without being comfortable sitting in the ambiguity of of the question. Um, So so the process really has four parts. And and the first is to define your questions. So for me, it was thinking about what had I learned in the last decade of, of building and leading Global Citizen Year. Then sort of encountering who I was now and who I was becoming and what kind of work I was f- feeling drawn to do next. And and it was really defining those questions without the need to answer them, but with a genuine desire to just sit inside of them, to carry the questions with some faith that the answers would emerge. And so after defining our questions, it's really a matter of finding our teachers. And those may not be the the usual suspects or the people who are assigned to us, but I did what I would now call a wisdom tour over the summer, where I sought out my college professors, my first boss, my first employee. I spent a lot of time with my kids. My boys are six and seven years old and uh, have vivid memory of, of learning from them as they were were uh, cultivating caterpillars and watching them form chrysalises um, and then emerging as butterflies. And in the process, we learned that while in the chrysalis, a caterpillar 
liquefies, actually loses all form and shape, and and then emerges as a butterfly. And I found that to be such an exquisite metaphor for this process of a transition. So we define our questions, we find our teachers, and then there's something about leaving our comfort zone that I know from my own lived experience that I don't learn when I'm comfortable. I also don't learn when I'm panicked, but I learn when I'm stretched. And this is about stepping outside of our normal, habitual ways of doing things. So I picked up a guitar and struggled through learning some early chords. I, um, you know, changed my running route and did things that I wasn't typically accustomed to doing. And, and I think anything that sort of knocks us off off balance a bit. I then spent a week traveling by myself in, in Sicily and just had an experience of, you know, tuning into who am I when nobody's watching. What are my preferences when I'm not accommodating other people? And you just let the noise settle and you're still living in those questions. And um, But it was really that that final week of travel on my own that I found incredibly formative in digesting um, and sort of living my way towards some of the answers. And then there's a process of reflecting throughout. I think I really am a huge believer in rigorous reflection that helps us understand uh, holistically where we are in a transition and reflect it back to ourselves. And whether that's through meditation or writing, um, I was really exploring a morning writing practice, writing morning pages, three pages by hand, long form every morning when I woke up. And it was really in that exercise that I was able to see the contents of my mind and heart and just develop a more compassionate and intimate relationship with my own experience. Well, I love your process. I was um, taking notes thinking, I got to write about this someplace. But um, let me just uh, reiterate my understanding, because I think this is such a great takeaway. Um, I, I agree with you entirely that any kind of transition starts with the questions. And, and you made the point that it's not just about the answers. Defining the questions is a really important phase. And I've found with myself and with some coaching clients that lots of times if people live with the questions for a while, even if they're not you know, worrying about them in the middle of the night, if, the, if they're kind of put in the back of their brains, they're still being processed. So defining the questions makes such a lot of sense, and I, and and I totally agree with you that um, writing can be an important part of the process, even if you don't know the answer. And there's lots of research about how writing kind of involves your 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 whole brain, your whole body. It's a wonderful way to process anything. So I I, I would urge people to um, do do those two things and to to learn to pause. That feels like a great transition um, mindset to to cultivate. Um, is, is that, did I get the essence there? Absolutely. Beautifully, beautifully. And I think by creating this space for myself, I was able to leave the water I'd been in and see it more clearly from a distance. I was able to reconnect with myself in ways that were harder in the day-to-day -day complexity and, um, 
process of, of, of leading Global Citizen Year. And what came clear for me through that experience is that my mission is still my mission. I am deeply and increasingly committed to helping young people on the cusp of adulthood have the kinds of experiences that help them frame their questions so that when they then make decisions about what comes next, whether it's going to college or or into work experiences or designing their own higher education, that we need a global rite of passage. And my pause this summer created a, a sense of... Um, aspiration and inspiration around thinking about new models that can help create a, a really large-scale change in how we think about this life stage. Well, I, I agree with you that it's time for new models. And I do a little uh, work with uh, universities, and my sense is that, that things are changing, but very, very unevenly. So in, in your next phase, are you going to be thinking about what the new model can be like, about how um, schools and universities can be different, learning can be different. Is that part of your focus? And uh, do you want to tell us about what you're going to be doing in the next phase? Or you started, I guess, already? Yeah, I'm just beginning. And I'm, I'm so fortunate to have a role this year as what's called an entrepreneur in residence with the Emerson Collective. Um, and what it is, is a salary allowing me the space to be entrepreneurial as I connect the dots and the resources and the people and the ideas to see what emerges. And my interest is in taking everything we built and learned at Global Citizen Year and recognizing that that's a blueprint for something that could reshape education, that could change the paradigms globally in how young people learn, how they launch, and how they lead. And so my commitment, my North Star remains the same. And I now have this enormous opportunity um, to, to use, build on the experience I've had, um, the, the ways in which the world has changed to gather allies and, and partners and collaborators in thinking about how we can scale these solutions to the size of what's really needed. And are you talking about not just, uh, say, gap year, kind of big um, pauses and opportunities like that, but it feels as though all of our old ideas about semesters and uh, books as learning tools and you know, just about everything is up for grabs now. It, it, is it possible that there's there are learning patterns that are three weeks in the classroom and three weeks in the world or just all different kinds of ways of promoting learning? Is that going to happen? I think there's so many opportunities to shift perspectives and practice and to embed some of these insights and ideas into existing institutions. Um, I'm thinking about how narrative shift and storytelling can change how we approach education and this transition into adulthood. My guiding light continues to be uh, a vision that would embed a rite of passage between these two stages of life, recognizing that it's not yet normative, but it could be. And if a lived experience at that age can shape young leaders in ways the world needs most, we can get colleges on board, shifting how they think about their application process and their admissions criteria. We can get employers on board, valuing what I like to call the real 21st century skills, R-E-A-L, which resilience, empathy, 
adaptability and leadership. And I think there's a, an opportunity to create new credentials as well that really certify the kind of learning that happens, not just in a classroom, but through lived experience. Uh, related to all the opportunities um, that are possible at that age when you're not um, in a, kind of in a narrow channel yet. You, you mentioned, I, I guess, the new uh, neuroscience about it all. I was, I was reading in the context of coaching recently how um, kids at 18 have like lots and lots of potential neural pathways. The way their brain operates just hasn't been set yet. So if you can have even a relatively small but meaningful experience at that age, whether it's a gap year or something small like coaching, you can actually change the way people's brains are wired to give them far more opportunities than would happen if they just stayed on the traditional track. Is, is, is that, do I have that right? That's, ex- I mean, that's exactly my belief in why this age group and this cohort, this moment in somebody's development is the magic moment that we overlook societally by sending kids straight from school into more school without creating opportunities for them to step back and put their lives and their experiences in a broader context and to have the kind of coaching and um, peer support and rigorous reflection that would help shift their trajectory at that age. I think we've got kids running so hard and fast on these imagined pathways, but they have very little opportunity to step back and ask where they're heading or why. And I think the, you know, one of the things that that really stays with me as an image is that the sooner we can shift somebody's trajectory, even just, a, a, you know, one degree from the origin, the sooner that shift happens, the, the further from the origin that life will will go. And I, I think of so many of my peers who in their 30s, 40s, and 50s finally paused. Um, and, and maybe they had some uh, you know, shake up in their lives or, uh, you know, crisis that, that brought them into contact with their own mortality. But, but what a shame that we wait for, um, for humans to identify what they aspire to become. And, and the power of doing this earlier is, is really what, what drives me in, in all of my work. Somehow we have to give, these young people a greater sense of permission. When I speak on campuses sometimes, and since I write about work and career and those kind of things, I, maybe that's why uh, the kids who are really obsessed by career are coming. But I am always so sad to see kids so worried that if they have uh, make a mistake in their um, what course they take or what internship they take, the, their career is over, their life is ruined. They're so worried sometimes about uh, picking the perfect path. And what I always try to say is, this is the time to make mistakes. You know, some of your greatest growth are going to come from the things that don't go right. This is the time to, you know, try something new. And the most important thing may be just getting comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, yeah. But it's it's a hard message to get across, isn't it? Oh, it's so hard. We have to learn it experientially. I mean, I'm sure people said 
the same thing to me as I was growing up. And I think we live in a culture that values perfection, polish, performance. Certainly social media has made all of that exponentially worse. And then we see the effect of it, which is a mental health crisis among emerging adults um, who feel like they can't fail or that even a small failure or step off a, a track is somehow getting them behind or off track or might derail them for life. And my my mission is, is really to help young people be comfortable with ambiguity, with uncertainty, with failure, with experimentation. And my belief is that if we can carve out a space outside of our traditional structures and systems that supports young people in in a safe way, in having those kinds of stretch experiences, that we can rewire their orientation for life in many ways. Well, we're about out of time, I'm sad to say, but I wonder if you have any, I don't know, final word of encouragement for listeners who might be out there, maybe they're very young or maybe they're not quite so young, but people who think, oh, I wish I could pause. Is there any encouraging word to suggest that everybody can find a way to pause? Well, I guess I would say that everybody can find a way to pause. I think we so often set the bar so high. We say, you know, unless I can take a year's sabbatical or three months uh, off work or to travel. But what if we lowered the bar? What if we recognize that there are opportunities to pause in the moment we wake up in the morning before we reach for our phone? What does it look like to just build in space between one activity and the next? I have a practice of putting my phone down in an elevator or of feeling my feet as I walk across a threshold into my house in the evening. Um, I think there are ways that we can hold ourselves accountable and make small but really profound shifts in our pacing that just wake us up to our own agency to choose, not to be swept along by momentum or to be always in a constant state of reaction, but actually to just build breaths, spaces, joints in the juncture between one activity and the next. And I think once we get accustomed to that, we can't not continue on that path. Oh, that's wonderful advice. And so if we all just breathe a little bit as we change gears for the rest of the day, that could be the start of a big shift. So, Abby, thank you so much for being here today. It's your joy to talk to, and I, I'm eager to hear from you again, I hope, when um, you're further along on, on your entrepreneurship uh, fellowship, and you can tell us what you're thinking about. Oh, thank you, Bev. This uh, conversation has been a breath between one thing and the next, and um, I'm going to take it and carry it as a, as a deep exhale. So thank you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Today, we've been talking with social entrepreneur Abby Phelan about how taking a break can be the best way to move forward. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Find Your Happy at Work. Today's tip is that, although it may feel counterintuitive, sometimes the best way to move forward is to take a little break. Thanks for listening to Jazzed About Work. If you like our show, please tell your friends about us. Thank you.